Welcome listeners in podcast and YouTube land. This is the Beyondering Podcast, now in colour, where we explore faith out of bounds. Thanks for joining us for this special, or first of the special Advent series, a series of four uh, shorter, more conversational episodes exploring the lead up to this crazy time, Christmas. Lucas, question for you. Mm. Gut response. When I ask you what image comes to mind when you think about how Christmas is seen and portrayed, what do you think of? I think of baby in a manger. Baby in a manger. Yep. What's the baby? How does it look? Uh, It's small, round. Yep. Um. (laughs) Is it, you know, you've obviously had a couple of kids. Is it bloody and awkward and, or is it white and... Well, certain, yeah, look, uh, that's certainly not how we dress them up in our Advent play at uh, <laughs> church. It's, it's, there's tea towels that are sort of being used as costumes. There's, um, there's one dimensional, or, or, sorry, two dimensional flats, like with the painting of nativity scenes of, of animals and things like that uh, floating around as well, and very prickly straw that's yeah, making the child say, cry. That's what, I'm always amazed by how prickly the straw is. Like, <laughs> this is not a bed for it. Just shove them on the ground. That's Surely right. the ground's better than this straw. <laughs> so I'm interested in the idea that donkeys are on Christmas cards, mm. and yet donkeys aren't in the biblical story. And innkeepers get their own carols and mm. Christmas cards. They're not actually in the biblical narrative. There's a lot going on in our uh, expression of, our reenactment of, in our living of Christmas that goes on now that's just not faithful to the story. Yeah. And how fascinating that is. Yeah. Our tradition has evolved way past the actual stories. Mm. So for this Advent series, we're kind of interested in the idea that this overly familiar story that we bump into every year has actually become so familiar, we're actually not hearing the story. Mm. Or more, we're actually missing. that All these layers of dust have formed over this incredibly multi-layered, multi-dimensional story that we've actually, we're failing to see. We're, we're missing the story. Yep. Um, I'm really interested in the idea too that that our friend Herod uh, gets diddly squat mentioned. Yeah. So there's donkeys, there's innkeepers, there's all, all this other- In today's telling of the story. In today's telling yeah. of the story, yes. Yeah. Where's Herod's carol? Where's Herod's Christmas card? Where's his action figurine? Where's that sort of scary looking guy in the back of a t- nativity yeah. scene peering over it? Yeah. You know, yeah. today's episode is, is focusing on Herod because we only have two biblical narratives that tell the story- of Jesus, and for many for many people, that's actually not tell, known. Tell the story of Jesus' birth. Correct. But tell the story. <laughs> Some of, of the others mention Jesus a couple of times, but <laughs> there's a few references. I wouldn't yeah, call them a, yeah. a story. <laughs> no, no, but you're right, and that might surprise some people. Who, yeah, totally. That we've got four gospel accounts: uh, the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but only two of them actually, whether they knew of or actually bother telling, the birth narrative yeah. of Jesus, which is a fascinating totally. omission. Or well. We don't know. Is it an omission? Is it it a deliberate leaving out of? Is it... Exactly. What's going on? Why? And not only that, of the two, our Christmas stories are complete mashups of these two totally contrasting stories. They don't... They don't actually link particularly well, that there's just so much different focus in the various Gospels. And so part of this Advent series is actually to do a bit of sifting out of actually what the different storytellers are doing. So today, when we look at Herod, we're looking particularly at Matthew's Gospel Mm. that opens and very, very, very early in the birth narrative, we just hear this stunning line and it's in the time of Herod. I've always, growing up as a kid, I've always just read over that line. Mm. But I'm kind of fascinated of what that might have done for a listener to mm. hear Herod. Who who was Herod and, and what would that have stirred up in mm. the listeners at the time? An early listener of the story. An early yeah. listener. Yeah. yeah. So let's start with who the hell mm. is Herod? Mm, good question. What, what do you know of King Herod? Well, and, and it's, a, it's a good question because there's actually a number of Herods that we yes. come across in the biblical story. Mm. And so... Uh, I, and I, I keep needing to go back to yeah. sort of unpick and go, hang on, which one are we talking about here again? Is that Jenny Jenny or Microwave Jenny? Yeah, Microwave Jenny. Jenny or... <laughs> That's right. So there's a number of Herods. And in, in, in fact, I found it just helpful in reading, rereading through. There's actually almost four generations that we come across yes. in the story of Jesus uh, that, that are relevant throughout the life of Jesus. So uh, we can start with uh, the 
So we can start with a guy called Antipas. Yes. Okay. And he had a son called Herod mm. and who became known as Herod the Great. Okay. And he was the guy who in that first line of Matthew, as you yes. say, in the time of Herod, that's, this is Herod the Great. Mm. He was a big deal. He was a big deal. <laughs> and, and he made himself a big deal. He, he was the Ron himself... Burgundy of the, the whole area. <laughs> That's right. He was trapped in a glass cage of emotion. But <laughs> one of the reasons he was really important uh, to, the, uh, to, to the Jewish people at that time was that he was responsible for rebuilding the second temple. That's right. Okay. So, which is obviously, which is the temple that Jesus talks about, I'm going to tear it down again and, yeah. and rebuild it in three days. Yeah. Okay. So... So that, that was a really big deal. So he's kind of the key Herod, hmm. right? He's Herod the Great. But he also had a number of children uh, yes. who also took the name Herod. Yes. And so Herod almost becomes a bit of a title at this point that yes. gets shared amongst. One of his children was called Herod Antipas. So he combined his own name with his father's name mm. and created the, and and uh, had Herod Antipas. There was Herod Philip. There was a, there was another range of other Herods as well. Now, and some of those are the ones we'll hear later in the Gospels when they bop John the Baptist. Exactly right. So Herod Philip was the father of a of a girl called Salome or Salome, uh, who danced for her uncle, Herod Antipas. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got to the fourth generation here, and she's the one who's uh, who, who ends up demanding at the encouragement of her mother to uh, th- that she'll have the head of John the Baptist. Do I want lamb? Lord. Do I want pork? Do I look? Give me John the that's Baptist. Right, that's right. That's right. You've offered me up to half the kingdom. How about a head on a platter? <laughs> yep, awesome. Uh, so that's that's the four generations: Antipas, Herod the Great, through to Herod Antipas, and then on to Salome. Mm-hmm. And we hear the, all of these throughout the throughout. The gospel the story. story. Jesus, yeah. Herod Antipas, um, the, the son of Herod the Great, is there is the Herod that's in power during the crucifixion week. Yes. So when uh, they take um, the authorities take uh, want to involve some of the Roman authorities in this, he puts his hands up and says, oh, "I don't want a bar of it. Keep on going." Mm. Um, but so he's the Herod Herod that's in charge at that. Who comes into the story at that point in time? So it's fair to say, if you're in the first century and when this story is first written, this story is written maybe 85 CE, so maybe 50 years after Jesus' birth. It's fair to say if you heard the term Herod, mm. you are the, ne- the the hairs on the back of your neck yeah. have pricked up. Yeah. This is not a glossed over word, you know, in the same no. way that if we read, and under Trump, da 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 you go, whoa, this guy worked for Trump, well, whatever it is. Well, and, and more than that, because in some way, because they're a dynasty, they're, yes. they're, they're a family who, who pass power down amongst themselves. So Herod not only means the individual, but it's also the the, the dynasty of all of, of all of these people. Yeah. Um, they're, they're like the mob family running That's the it. thing. Like That's you don't it. cross these people yes. like, and they're the people in charge. You don't cross these people because they cross oh, you. Good. Yeah, that's yes. true. <laughs> and let, well, let's go into some of that detail around this Herod the Great bloke. That's Because right. he was a nasty piece of work. Oh. He was just universally known as one of the most cruel, uh, ruthless, violent, vicious rulers yep. ever. Yeah. You know, so... Um, Despite the fact that he's put in there by Rome, that he's Jewish, he kind of has these Jewish ties because mm. he's helping the Jewish people get this mm. temple going, he would just rape and pillage different cities. Mm. And he was just known for just building all sorts of crazy things to just extend his name and mm. his power. And So he built a mountain. He just literally <laughs> in the middle of a desert built a mountain. Wow. And of course, how's this built? On the back of Jewish slaves. Mm. He would just grab towns and take them. So he's built... Um, all sorts of nut stuff. So and the power that he's wielding is Roman power. He's there because Rome has put him in power and everything that he does, uh, all of the, like he's allowed to be as brutal as he is because he's brutal towards the aims of the Romans. Correct. Correct. <laughs> so he's not doing anything anti-Rome. He's he's the guy. And he, he is Jewish. There's there's yes. no doubt. that. And I mean, I've, I've read different things, but he's had, a, I've listed up to 10 wives that he's had. Correct. And so, yeah. uh, and, and apparently <laughs> some, uh, one of the, one source described him as quite cosmopolitan because all of his wives were from like different cultures and different <laughs> races. And <laughs> what a lovely guy. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, he's just, he's collecting the whole set. He's got exactly. a rainbow family going on. Exactly. But, and he had 14 kids to six of those wives. So mm, he also spread his love around. Well, that's right. Also... But there's no, I, I, I suspect that he's marrying strategically. Sure. Well. So one of his wife was related That's to... That's a real conspiracy. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> one of his wives was part of the Maccabean uh, group in the in the Jewish mm-hmm. people. And through her, the, he, he actually has some claim to Jewish kingship. Uh-huh. So there's a family tie there. So he he's able to actually make 
you know, broadly make some sort of vaguely legitimate claim to the Romans to say, I, I should be part of the, the, the discussion around who's going to be local king here. So picture we're getting ruthless, yep. murdering. So you mentioned the wives. Mm. Well, he killed one or two of his wives. Well, and he killed his own children. He killed two of his own children. Yeah. One of them begged for his life mm. to him. Mm. And he said, no, mm. knocked, you know, sacked mm. him. He killed... Um, he killed his wife's mother. He killed the high priest. That's and, you know, right. here he is. That's as right. He killed his mother-in-law, right? He killed his mother-in-law. I mean, that's, that's not part of the Christmas story often. No. Gonna, can, we, can we make that into a Beyond Red Christmas card <laughs> for family occasions? We'll give it a crack. We'll <laughs> give it a crack. But you're getting a picture of this bloke who's just doing everything for his own political gain, hmm. for his own extending of his kingdom. So all this other stuff he built. He built a port. He, he built cities. He built gyms. He built temples. He built roads. He built aqueducts. He built theatres fortresses. He even funded the Olympics. <laughs> this bloke was a banana. And of course, all of these things would be, I want to do it. So yeah. you go and get as many, you know, slaves as you can mm. and take them off and you're going to build it. Mm. So you and I have been to Caesarea Philippi mm. where he built this port that you could not build a port. Mm. Like it was rocky, marshy kind of useless land. Mm. And he built in the water. He got all this concrete and poured it into the sea to mm. build these ports to capitalize on all the ships that are coming up the coastline mm. going, oh, I can get a piece of them as they come by. Mm. So this guy, that's the picture we've got. Yep. I mean, that's that's quite a lengthy in-depth thing around this guy who is just a nutbag. Mm. So mm. when we read the sentence mm. in the time of Herod, yeah. We're freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as listeners, we're like, holy moly, stuff, yeah. something's going down. Yeah, that's right. It brings, it instantly touches on the, a live story for people. It, it, it's shorthand for uh, for power, uh, for yes. abuse of power. Yes. It's shorthand for oppression. It's shorthand for you know the local presence of Roman rule, of yes. empire. Um, all of that comes to mind. Every, as soon as you mention the word Herod, you are reminded yes. that this is the world that you live in. Mm -hmm. And it's not your, it's not a friendly, mm. safe world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a brutal, oppressive world. So that's, that's how it's set up. So let's look at what happens in the biblical story again, only in Matthew's gospel, mm. is that he hears this idea that, that an awaited liberator might be born mm. or is about to be born. And so he searches out these these wise men to, to try and work out well, where might this baby be born and how can I kind of cut it off before it kind of gets any legs. Mm. So he's also this king that in no way, Herod the Great was known as he killed his own wife, his kids, anyone who threatened his own power, he's bopping. Mm. So, of course, it fits well with the idea that, hang on, this liberator of the Jewish people, even as a Jew, mm. a Messiah, someone who could offer us hope, is emerging. Mm. I've got to kill that. Mm. So he seeks out these people from the east, from beyond his own tribe, to try and help him, to try and get a handle on um, you know, how he could, he could avoid the threat. Yeah, that's right. And um, because, of course, one of the – we've mentioned a whole bunch of horrific stuff around him that's not listed you – know, we, we think we know it from history, but it's not listed in the biblical account. But one of the stories that is listed is, of course, the massacre of the innocents. Yes. And so um, th there's some question as mm. historically whether that's occurred in, in, in that same way, but there's no doubt that that's a believable story Correct. for the readers. Correct. There's, there's no, you wouldn't put it past the bloke. <laughs> exactly. So Herod dies in 4 BC, as you said. So as yeah. you said, a lot of scholars are unsure there's any factual, there's, there's been no discovered evidence that a, a big killing, a large killing of infants happened. Yep. Some other scholars would counter that and saying, well, Bethlehem, where the killing seems to have taken place, was a really small village. Yeah. So maybe if 20, 30, 50 kids. then maybe... Yeah, it's yeah, it's a life changing event for the for members that of that community. town. But in the bigger scheme of things, actually those kind of things probably went on yeah, routine all, all too often. Totally. All too often. Yeah. yeah. So it's unlikely it probably happened because if it did happen, even if it was localized, even if they had a way of hushing people, in an oral tradition those stories move from town mm. to town through regions yeah. that this is what's happened. Yeah. So but that's kind of fascinating that the author is actually using these accounts that and this is classic Jewish storytelling. Never let the facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> it, the, the writer may have believed it to be true. He mm. may not have. But mm. in terms of Jewish storytelling, it's the lesser important thing. Mm. They're retelling what they know is a true story. Mm. And that is there is he, this baby is going to be a threat mm. to the empire. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that's so something we totally take for granted as we think about the Christmas story is as the 
opening backdrop is laid out. Mm. The backdrop is there is this dark, looming presence, this mm. this threat that is deeply fearful of what this Jesus might be mm. to the powers that be, to Rome, to you know, to the empire. Yeah. And that's and that's the that's the point I guess that that we want to try to have with these conversations that understanding the backdrop colors the rest of the whole story. Yes. Like you remember when you're a kid and my kids do it now but if you if you're coloring on a white sheet of paper the picture that you want to draw it changes the tools you want to if you're using a black piece of paper it changes the the tools that you're going to use to draw that to draw that picture interesting okay so the background changes the tools you'll use to tell the story interesting so uh, in in the gospel in the in the birth narrative the backdrop actually does some of the storytelling for him mm. <laughs> by putting that out there by naming this as the uh, the context of the story it shapes the way that we then read some of the other elements of the story that are going to be that are going to be going on. Yes. So yeah, we we've spoken to John Dominic Crossan mm. uh, in in season one of our podcast uh, in our Christmas episode actually. Oh, yes. So go back yeah. and listen to that if you haven't already. Uh, and one of the points that he makes is there's no point talking about the life of Martin Luther King if you're not going to talk about the civil rights movements in 1950s 1960s America. Mm. You you are missing a whole chunk of the story if you are just going to talk about I have a dream, what a wonderful yes. speech that was, yes. but you're not going to talk about the racism and you're not going to talk about the exploitation and the fear that that existed for black people in 1950s, 1960s America. still exists today, and so, yeah, of sure, course, sure. but that's the context out of which um, this man's story arose. Mm. That's the context which actually get in light of which this man's story has so much power for us. Yes. Likewise, um, and we might talk about some of the terms that are used to describe yeah. Jesus yeah, because yeah. of this, um, because of the political context at the time. You can't say today, "I am going to make something great again," mm. without it touching Correct. on Trump. Correct. Because he says, "Make America great again." If I were to say, "You know what? Make let's make generosity, make compassion, let's make hope great again." I'm instantly, and and the listener knows, I'm instantly making a counterclaim yes. to everything that Trump is, yes. because that's the context, that's the background in which into which I speak those words. Mm. And so this whole story, both in the way that the writer, the gospel writer, tells it, but then also how Jesus is revealed to live his life later on in the in the kind of his actions and the way he speaks about himself and the world uh, it, the, are making counterclaims to the to the context of the wider story. Right from the very, yep. very start. Yeah. So these words you alluded to earlier that, of course, sit in the backdrop that without a Dominic Cross and without a historians, we'd have no mm. idea about, but for yep. early listeners are deeply aware. Yep. We hear of Jesus spoken of all these amazing terms, son of God, king of kings, mm. prince of peace. Mm. We've found coins and inscriptions, and archaeologists have helped to see that Caesar, prior to Jesus' birth, around the time of Jesus, throughout his story, Caesar and all the authorities that would come after him would be branded with these names. Caesar mm. demanded of his people, mm. and he would kill you if you did not ascribe to That's this right. belief That's right. that he is the Son of God. That's right. Savior of the world. Savior of the world. Yep. He uh, created a time of relative peace in this 10-year period before Jesus was born and demanded and was known as the Prince of Peace. Mm. So these are all phrases mm. that are well familiar to mm. uh, to listeners at the time. And That's of course, right. if you were to use these phrases for anyone else other than for Rome, for Caesar, for, you know, for the authorities of that time, mm. you would be committing deep crime. You That's are right. setting yourself against. It's, it's, it's sedition. It's, sedition. It, it's making a claim against the empire. And That's Rome right. had a way of dealing with people. <laughs> That's right. Well, <laughs> funny you should mention it. It tended to result in crucifixion. Where have we heard that before? Yeah. <laughs> That's where this story ends. And this birth narrative we have has Mary told your son will be great. He will be called. He will be son of God. There's these That's ideas right. from the very start that are the um, that make compassion great again. That's right. Counterclaims for this child. Yeah who will be a threat to the domination systems, mm. to conventional wisdom, to to the voices of Herod, mm. to the voices of empire and Rome. And it's not 
I mean, we need. To, it's important that we note that the order was Caesar was making his, his these claims about himself first, yes, and then the gospel writer is recording those claims about Jesus. It's not the other way around. Yes, it's not like Jesus has come out and said, "I'm the King of Kings," and then later on, a political person has Caesar's has, gone, no, no, has no, appropriated it. No, yes. no, no. This is a direct claim against the empire. Yes. Or it's making an alternative claim against the empire. So a phrase we use all the time, kingdom of God, mm. or, or perhaps better translated empire of God, if mm. you look at the Greek, mm. is the craziest, most subversive yep. political phrase. Because yeah. he's offering this idea of, you, you know about the kingdom of Rome, the empire of Rome, mm. but I offer you a different way, an alternative, yeah. a counterclaim that is an empire of the reign of God's love. Mm. An empire mm. that will look very different to yeah. that of Rome. And when you talked about just a moment ago, you mentioned um, that Caesar, yeah, brought about a period of nominal Relative. peace and stability. Mm. This is this Pax Romana, peace yes. under Rome. And that peace was brought about through the sword. That peace was brought about through the occupying army. You don't mess with them. There's no fighting, so that you know there's <laughs> there's peace in that sense. Peace means no uprising. That's right. Yeah. It's, but it's peace via oppression. And um, I mentioned before that uh, not only in the words that we use, but the way that Jesus lived his life was a counterclaim to that. So when we read of later stories in the in the life and the ministry of Jesus, where Jesus says, "Go into people's homes and say." peace be upon this yes. home. This yes. is this shalom, yes. which is a counterclaim. It's not shalom means the peace of God be with you. Okay. So go into people's homes and say the peace of God be with you, not the peace of Rome. Yes. It's this, it is this complete counterclaim that's, yeah. that's saying exactly as they say, not the peace brought about through uh, oppression, but the peace brought about the reign of God, not the reign of Caesar, but the reign of God. They, they found coins with the inscription of peace by military mm. victory, by mm. military might, I think mm. it was. But of course, the peace they're talking about is very yep. different to the shalom. That's was. right. That's right. So the only other caveat I find really interesting is it, it may not be historically accurate that Herod went and killed all these babies. Mm -hmm. It may have been, mm. but historians, archaeologists question its validity. Mm. But here's another thing in terms of Jewish storytelling. If you're a Jewish person and you hear of the idea of infant killings mm. by this person who with slave labor would create cities and aqueducts mm. and who do you ta get taken to? You get taken to Pharaoh. Mm. You know, a Jewish person, mm. when they hear about the killing of infants, would mm. this is a Jewish people that retell the story of Passover every year mm. of the firstborns that are mm. killed. Mm. So there's this other hidden, and it happens a lot in Matthew's gospel, there's mm. all these references, hidden references to Moses and throwbacks that Jewish listeners would just get that we don't, yep. that there's this other hidden throwback of here's the current Pharaoh, mm. here's the current, you know, slave labor wielder. Yeah, so that's another hidden layer in this multidimensional yep. Christian text. Yep. So there's a lot of a backdrop. Mm. When listeners are hearing this, birth narrative that we tell now in nativity scenes with beautiful white things mm. and angels and multitudes. We've picked out the beautiful aspects, mm. but the story starts with this dark looming backdrop yep. that says in the time of Herod yep. and infants were killed and there's this threat to a rule. Mm. So let's take that a step further and wonder in hearing the story afresh today, what might it mean to know that the voice of Herod is not a voice back then. Mm. A voice of Herod is any voice which makes a claim, an empire-like claim, mm. that is unchallengeable, mm. that is my way or the highway. The voice of Herod is still here today on all sorts mm. of levels. Mm. Uh, for you, when you think about the voice of Herod, mm. but this counterclaim of the voice of Christ, mm. where are you taken to? Yeah, so... Reflecting on it as the background context story is, is the way we've described it. Um, I was struck by the des description in some of the reading I was doing that described Herod as a client king. Mm -hmm. So he was, as, as we've already described, he was put in place by Rome. So a puppet king. He was, yeah, that's right. That's right. He, his power came because he was installed mm -hmm. by the domineering empire. And what it tells me or what it reminds me of is that the most insidious cruelty of enslavement is actually causing the enslaved to become their own oppressors. Oh, wow. Okay, so thinking about um, 
uh, that Tarantino movie, Django Unchained. You haven't seen it? Okay. The Samuel L. Jackson character. Okay. He's in a lot of Tarantino films. Okay. So he's a black man who actually works alongside the white slave owner to help enslave other black men. Wow. Okay. So, and this is the most insidious, cruelest parts of oppression and slavery is actually, in a way, forcing someone to become their own slave master. Yeah, wow. You know, mentally, psychologically, breaking people to the point where they are willing to oppress even their own kin, their own kind, their own selves, uh, to um, in order to survive within this oppressive system. Okay, so it what it, it's degrading. It's it's the most divisive aspect of of oppression. So, mm. what it makes me think about today is how are we enslaved? How do we participate in our own enslavement, participation in, in these in oppressive systems today? So it's things like by mindlessly participating in consumerism yes. in the lead up to Christmas. You know, you just think about how busy and hectic Christmas is. Have I written all the right cards to all the right people? Have I, you know, I've got a I've got a, a shopping list of all the presents I have to buy because there's an obligation there, which is not what gift is about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if I don't, if, you know, if I don't meet this obligation, then then the relationship is fractured. Rather than mm. how how is giving this gift an expression of this relationship, mm. right? And so we you know, and we participate in. You know, late night shoppings. We're absent from our families because we're out rushing, <laughs> trying to get the last minute gift to just to fill those obligations. Yeah. And so, in this kind of way, we're actually participating in our own enslavement. Mm. We that we prop up this system of hyper consumerism mm. uh, and 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 self perpetuate it. Yeah. And so, um, the other idea that it makes me think of is, um, you know. We have these constant conversations about non-trading days. Like, should there be football on Good Friday, yes, or yes. should, yeah, should you be able to go to the shops on Good Friday or on on Christmas Day or whatever? Um, and I'm kind of maybe strangely conservative about this, but I'm actually happy for there to be yes, some yes. days within the rhythm of our life mm. where we say some parts of my life can't be bought. Yes. They're not going to participate in this economic transaction, yeah. in the system of economic transaction. So, I don't care how many, how much penalty rates, you know, you're you're willing to compensate me with. I family time can't be replaced, yes. and it can't be bought, and that's a priority in my life that's going to exist outside the consumeristic economic trading kind of system. Yeah. Um, so that's the that's the that's the question that that Herod rises rises totally. for me. How do we? How do I participate in my own enslavement in these systems? Yes. And so the voice of consumerism, of needing to consume, needing to be a part of this system, uh, is a huge voice of Herod. That, that's mm. the empire that says you need yeah. more, yep. you need the best, yep. you need to look a certain way, you mm. need to be contributing to this economic system. Mm. And if you're not working this amount, if you're not earning this amount, then mm. you're falling short of yep. the expectations. Yep. So that's a lovely invitation of Christmas to ask what it means to opt out of mm. the consumeristic machine. Mm. And a system that I sit back and go, little old me can't challenge this. Yeah. You know, little old little old village dweller can't fight Rome, can't fight Herod. But we can't stop that machine. That's right, I can't stop that machine. Um but can I be a spoke in the wheel? Can yes. I can I live a different life here and now in my own little space? Yeah. Yeah. I think two of um Voice of Herod for me, one of them, and again on a very macro kind of political sort of setup, is just the idea of nation v nation. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that um, that that we are a kingdom that needs to be protected, and mm. even the idea of borders and mm. countries mm. is actually a fascinating idea. Mm. They actually don't physically exist, mm. but we've delineated spaces. And of course, there's some practical necessity to that. Mm. But of course, what it bleeds into, these unhelpful Herod voices, is that those beyond these borders are a threat or mm. that our borders need to be protected mm. or that others that come across those borders in some way threaten or could threaten mm. our way of life. Mm. You know, and there's this kind of fascinating idea in Australia, particularly where as an island nation, we can protect our borders mm. in a way that mm. not many other countries in the entire world can, mm. but it does create this sense of threat of mm. other. 
and of course, in reality, we're all just people. Well, it creates this sense of entitlement as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. I have the right to, we will determine who will come here and the manner in which they come, which is the great quote from a former Prime Minister. Exactly. Yeah. And a hilarious idea when as a convict-settled nation, yeah. Yeah. most of us have a very short attachment yeah. to the very land that we're on. Yeah. Aside from our Indigenous brothers and sisters who have been here 60,000 years, but for many yeah. of us as, yeah. as Western, yeah. you know, and borders are, settlers. Yeah, borders are a completely human construct. They're, They're an agreement between construct. us. They didn't exist before humanity came along. Totally. I think, as, I think it was Russell Brand I heard talking about saying dinosaurs didn't walk around going, well, I'm a Belgian dinosaur, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that just didn't exist. So, <laughs> so oh. the degree, the degree to which we're willing to um, exclude people or yes. diminish people because they come from the other side of some border Correct. is just the degree to which we're willing to hold slavishly to this agreement, this construct this, of... Uh, this false of, of, herod voice yeah. that says, this is mine, mm. or you threaten your difference mm. is a threat to mine, mm. or that, you know, we want to make a claim on who you are and whether you're allowed to be here. Yeah. Um, and I just find that idea so challenging. And in Australia, we have this horrendous setup where those who are seeking asylum, mm. the, and of course, at the moment, we're one of the very few countries in the world that indefinitely detain people mm. who are trying to get here, mm. that we don't want them to be here. Mm. And I, I, it's, of course, an abhorrent idea when you think, well, we are all human beings. Mm. And take it another step further to think that, that 90% of the people in us have been officially mm. uh, um processed as a refugee, which yep. means they are fleeing persecution. well-founded fear of persecution. Well-founded yep. fear. Of, they need yep. help. They need refuge. They need safety. They, they need support yep. by our, other, our fellow human brothers and sisters. Mm. And we lock them up mm. and disallow their entrance. Mm. And, of course, this can only exist when the voice of Herod says, you are a threat mm. or, you know, you aren't following the correct lines mm. or you whatever narrative we want to yep. peddle. Yep. It's only as a result of this fake arbitrary, you know, mm. it, it, for me, as I hear the Christmas story mm. and picture a Jesus who himself mm. becomes a refugee, mm. he's unsafe in his own land and flees to Egypt, mm. that I am deeply challenged by these mm. political ideas of Herod today, mm. you know, that say who's in and who's out yep. and how the land should be run and how we will operate. Yep. Yep. It's another yep. voice of Herod for me. Yeah. And, and. Uh, those kids from that area aren't worth as much as these kids from this area. Yeah. And so I, I get to decide I'm going to wipe them out. Yep. That's that's horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> that's just a horrendous part. It's, a, uh, it's an all too common story in human history. In human history. But the Christmas yeah. story, the birth narrative of Jesus, is a, a story that speaks in opposition to that and makes mm. a counterclaim about mm. how the world could be. Yeah. So that's the voice of Herods that operate on kind of a macro scale is mm, large mm. political voices that offer a way of control and uh, of how life should be mm. that, of course, you know, we can go with and will go with unless we become awake to it. Yep, of conscription and enslavement to a system, to the status quo. Correct. Yep. So let's look at another layer, and that is that of conventional wisdom. Mm. So another way in which the voices of Herod exist. So the kingdom of God, as distinct from the kingdom of Rome, the kingdom of empire, the kingdom of Herod. For me, I'm interested in what you think about when you think of the way Jesus offers a different way, uh, a, a way against conventional thought and conventional wisdom. Mm. Mm. Well, in some ways it's... The choice that the gospel writer has made to tell the birth narrative, like we talked before about some gospel writers chose not to tell the birth narrative, yes. either by choice or just ignorance, um, but, but two have told them. Um, and that that's instructive, I think, that to talk about hope and uh, a, a saviour as, as one who brings hope as being this totally vulnerable, totally innocent uh, powerless child mm. from yeah not into a wealthy family not mm. <laughs> not the positions of power but from the back blocks from the backwaters um, beyond the black stump kind of idea this this is a, a this is a nobody from nowhere and this is and yet this is as important as it gets mm. it's a lovely idea so the, the the challenge to conventional wisdom that hope can emerge in times of great despair of times of mm. complete surprise of, mm. that it doesn't come from the powerful, the strong, the known, but the... That's right. That's right. It can come in 
in unexpected times from unexpected places. Mm. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, not from yeah, because we're all we're all great at creating strategic plans and to addressing the answers to our own problems. Yeah. Um, but how open are we to the wisdom of the complete other? Yeah. You know, to something completely new, to something completely unconventional, completely mm. unexpected. Mm. Another voice for me of, of Herod, of conventional wisdom is just how individualistic mm. our culture is. And we're told mm. that, um, you know, you are an island. You know, it's mm. kind of this inherent kind of idea mm. that um, we've totally lost any genuine sense of how interconnected we are. Mm. And I really came, I really faced this fully when I lived in the Philippines for eight months mm. and was astounded. They're of course, a much more communal society than we are. But something that brought it home for me was when we began having a conversation around um, insurance and superannuation. Okay. And they were really astounded at the concept of insurance. Mm. They're like, well, wait, so you as an individual put money away somewhere for a time when you might need it mm. to you know, build, rebuild a house mm. or to look after yourself. So you, you've got money available, mm. but you put it away in case you get in trouble, yep. you know, for that rainy yeah, you day. You warehouse it. You warehouse yeah. it. And they said, for us, our community is our insurance. Mm. The Philippines is the most um, susceptible to natural disaster of any place mm. on the planet. Mm. And you, you name mm. a natural disaster and they're likely to cop it. Yeah, well, there's, you know, three typhoons go through every every Christmas season, isn't it? It's nuts. Yeah. It's nuts. And they just know that's Super reality. typhoons, they call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. That's it's right. just, it's crazy. Yeah. And in that, in the face of that, in the knowledge that you will have your house at some mm. point sacked, mm. they say, but community is our insurance. Mm. When our house gets ravaged, mm. family kicks in, mm. community kicks in, and they'll give everything they've got because mm. they know because they are a connected human, yeah. that when you you lose your place, the same happens back again. Yeah. So you're open-handed. You give all you can yeah. and, and you receive all you need. Yeah. You and it's not, it's not a utilitarian kind of um, transaction of, oh, gee, I better look after yes. you so that Correct. You know, so that when my house gets knocked down, I'll be looked after. It's no, a credit no. point bank. That, that's yeah, right. Yeah. No, no. It, it, as you say, it's we are connected and the need present right now is too great for me to hide my money away or to stack to, yes. to warehouse it somewhere yes. you know, for only for my own purposes. Exactly. Yeah. So for me, there's this, there's myth, this Herod voice that exists in our culture that says you've got to store up warehouses. Mm. You've got to look out for yourself because mm. no one else will. Mm. You've got to, it was actually, I, I think the way of Jesus is surrendering to the fact that actually we are radically connected mm. and we can actually rely on each other so much more than we do. Mm. I get stunned by the idea that we do dinner two metres away from the next concrete block that's next to us and we're all making our dinners and, and we could actually more creatively think about what would communal dinners look like? Yeah. What if we cooked one in four and we just spread yeah. it around? Or, yeah. or our babysitting rather than sheep them off to daycare. What would it look like if we raised our kids more in a village? Mm. Yep. This idea that we are an island, yep. that we're separated from everyone else, yeah. is a deep myth that our culture wants us to buy into so that we utilise these systems, so that we... Well, and so that we can consume. Correct. Like how many, you know, if you live on a small court or you know, on the street that I live on, Every single property here owns their small motor mower. Correct. <laughs> but Correct. do we all need our own motor mower? Mm. Are we all mowing the lawns at exactly the right time? That's it. Or couldn't we just have? Couldn't we have one that we actually share with our neighbour? Yep. Because that's not something that I'm using 24 hours a day. Absolutely. <laughs> so a voice of Herod that says you're an individual, and of course that creates all these levels of fear mm. and of a need to shore mm. up your own, and mm. as opposed to surrender to the fact that if you live open-handed, mm. people will care for you, and you will find life, and yeah. that's a total total counter-narrative. Yeah, yeah. So this macro socio-political Herod voice that we can see quite strongly, yeah. but also these subtle conventional wisdom Herods yeah. that are all around us. That's right. That actually other ones for me is just um, the inability to be vulnerable for, as a man in today's culture. The messages are, of course, don't cry, mm. uh, you know, uh, don't show weakness, mm. don't, and this it's breaking down. There's no doubt about that, but it's this conventional myth that, you know, you're stuffed if you show your mm. your weaker side, mm. you know. So as opposed to the message of Jesus, which says that that's a false myth. Mm. Actually, it's in our brokenness and mm. our vulnerability that actually 
others can draw near to us and offer us support and solace and that we actually find peace mm. and actually we find that we are not alone, that mm. we are connected, mm. that, you know, but they're the Herod voices that kick in if unchallenged, mm. you know. So a final level, that's kind of the, the macro social, that's kind of the conventional wisdom that we all hover around, whether we even realize it or not, whether Herod's, and again, that's why Herod's such a great analogy is a backdrop. Mm. We're not even aware mm. that there's these subtle messages that say, don't be vulnerable or you are an island. Mm. But finally, I'm interested in the idea of the Herods that crop up in our inner worlds. Mm. Is there anything you'd offer in terms of the Herod voices within you? Say a bit more about it. I love the idea of Herod almost being akin to our ego. Okay, yeah. You know, of this idea, uh, this Herod voice in my head that says you need to be in control. Yep, yep. You know, you, you can't appear weak yeah. that says you need to create a domain mm. and protect it. Mm. You know, that says uh, you need to look right. You need to have an image that others like, mm-hmm. you know, all these kind of voices that um, again, if unchallenged and part of being a human being just seem to form naturally mm. as we become self-aware, mm. um, they just crystallize that when I do this, people laugh. Mm. When I act in a certain way, I gain friends. Yeah. When I and this Herod voice crystallizes, um, that says that's how you keep control. Mm. That's how you make it in the world. That's how you survive. You further. You succeed. You look good. You whatever it is. So, th- so some of that's the internalization of um, the, the the external Herod voices, like we, like I talked about about yeah. becoming your own enslaver yeah. um, because you know, we, we take on those messages of, as you say, um, you're a bloke, you shouldn't cry, yes. you, you know, you need to be tough. We internalize that because this is, okay, this is what a man looks like, so this is what I'm going to be. But then you're right, there's this, there is also present this innate ego level need yes. of, and maybe, you know, maybe the historical Herod exhibits it of, sure. I feel threatened, I'm going to go kill some babies. Yes. Because <laughs> yes. I can even be threatened by someone as small and powerless as this. Absolutely. Um, and so we lash out at people. And so yeah, in all, sor- in all sorts of ways in our life, I feel unsettled, I feel unsafe, I feel threatened, I lash out. It's, yes. That's the common ego response. Totally. Because it's the heart of survival as a human being, the trauma of being a human, mm. we search for security mm. and significance. Mm. And so we find all, we attach to Mm. all sorts of ways that give us Mm. security and significance. Mm. But of course, love doesn't actually occur Mm. if we live out of a place of security Mm. and significance. Mm. That does not open us up to intimacy Mm. or to connection or dependence or interdependence. Um, So for me, it's so fascinating because Security and significance is kind of necessary. Yeah. We, we kind of fall apart without our defense yep. mechanisms. Yep. But if we autopilot those defense mechanisms, yeah. if we just keep giving Herod the mic in our internal world, mm. if we don't find the, the Christ voice, if we don't find the little manger within us that mm. says, okay, that helped me feel okay in the world, mm. but I just need to drop that voice or quiet that voice down because I actually want to be vulnerable with this mm. person. Yeah. Or I actually want to say, I need help. Yeah. I don't want to say, I'm, I've got this all together. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, It's it relate these all relate really strongly to each other, but there's really strong research that suggests that um, one of the strongest factors for a person to feel safe in their neighbourhood is if they know the names of their neighbours. Okay, so just by knowing the the names and the faces of the people you pass on the street, you're yeah. out of the mailbox, you you know, you're putting the bins out, you see them, you weigh them. By knowing and and how often, honestly, how many of us don't know the neighbours? Oh yeah. It, let alone over the road from us, let alone two houses down, yeah. three houses. Yeah. You know, but one of the biggest contributing factors to a society, a community feeling safe, is knowing their neighbours. So that means they're opening yourself up. Being vulnerable, yes. I feel Asking awkward. I feel awkward knocking on my neighbour's door and going, "Oh, we're going away for a couple of days. Can you collect collect my mail?" You know, sometimes yeah, it's easy. Yeah. Let's just let it bank up, and we'll, you know, yeah, yeah, it will yeah, be yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. But so there's this vulnerability of opening yourself opening yourself up to the wider community, totally. and that's you know that's that's metaphorically for yeah. our individual story as totally. well, of opening ourselves up to others. But that safety, that security, that significance 
is actually a byproduct of that connecting the through vulnerability. And for me, in terms of my own counselling journey, it actually means naming those voices within me. Mm. My mm. next door neighbours that I avoid. Mm. You know, what are those voices that in naming I actually feel safer? Mm. Yeah, I have that voice that actually makes me laugh along with other things, even if I don't agree with it, because I'm just wanting to connect. Mm. And those voices that actually are shameful voices, mm. but actually when I name them, when I know the name of them, mm. that's a, it's an internal Herod voice that actually just doesn't have any power anymore. Mm. He's no longer the puppet king that takes mm. all in his wake. He's actually a mad, fairly fruitless <laughs> bloke right. who's on his way out. Yep, yep. And, yeah, you with, know, you know, who's racked by desperation. Who's just racked by fear. Try and, and just yeah. uphold himself. Yeah. Totally, who's deeply suspicious that yeah. maybe this isn't the only way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So let us finish then uh, this conversation with just an affirmation mm-hmm. that as uh, that this story tells us, as, we, as you prepare yourself for Christmas, as we experience Advent, which literally means the coming, uh, as we prepare ourselves um, or and, and, and wait in anticipation, um, as we reflect on... The, the 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 reality of horror in this world, the reality of fear, of famine, of flood, of fire, of uh, hatred, of violence, um, of, of exploitation and oppression, that's as real today in, in, in our lives in big ways, in macro ways and micro ways um, as it was in the time of Jesus. But the claim that the Christmas story is making, that the birth narratives of Jesus is making, as as we said, in the time of Herod, it's painting the reality of that story. But the claim that these stories is making is that even in such times, the presence of the sacred can emerge. Hope can be born. And so that's our that's our hope. Michael Learning's poem is Love is Born. With a dark and troubled face when hope is dead and in the most unlikely place, love is born. Love is always born. So as we face this question around what are the voices of Herod for us today? Are they big macro voices, a political system that just seems to march on or or is it just conventional wisdom? Is it just those voices that say this is the way life's supposed to be and this is how you're supposed to play the game? Or whether it's even those voices of Herod within us, we're all left with the question of what are those voices of Herod and what does it mean to know that even as even knowing that Herod exists and functions and continues to march on his army? that the voice of Christ, that this baby that offers an alternative narrative in that context is born and offers an invitation to follow. So there we go, folks. That wraps up episode one of our short Advent conversational series. Make sure you join us in the coming weeks. We've got three more conversations to come. We're going to explore a bunch of different topics in the lead up to Christmas. So please make sure you follow us on Facebook and check out our website, beyondering.com.au, and there you can jump on our mailing list and you can become a Beyonder backer and you can hear all about our plans for 2019. But now we want to leave you, as we will throughout this series, with an Advent meditation, a featured artist. Today we leave you with Alana Lewandowski, a great artist who you can check out at alanalewandowski.com. So thank you for coming Beyondering and please enjoy Alana's song, No Matter What Kings Say. How did we get so heartless? How did we get so cruel? Lifting up such evil by scapegoating the poor. So many wolves are in sheep's clothing with a Bible in their hand. Brokenhearted, I've been leaving the lie on truth we stand. You said, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek But today I find it hard to tell How that could ever be When the merciful are burdened And the mourners ridicule 
the bystanders stand by and play by all the rules. The bystanders stand by and play by all the rules. Then I think about the time when God emptied into you. And you emptied into mocked and forgotten places too, and the poverty of God became the poverty of all. No matter what kings say, in their fear of being small, you said, "Blessed are the poor." Blessed are the meek, but today I find it hard to tell how that could ever be. When the merciful are burdened and the mourners ridicule, and the bystanders stand by and play by all the rules, the bystanders stand by. And play by all the rules. So all that's left to say. Is how do I become meek and thirst with all the thirsty and let go of what I seek? Because the merciful are burdened and the mourners ridicule, and the bystanders stand by and play by all the rules. Yeah, we bystanders stand by and play by all the rules. The poverty of God became the poverty of all. No matter what kings say, in their fear of being small.